0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Each July, Tales of the Cocktail brings cocktail enthusiasts from all over the globe to New Orleans for some hot action. And we don't just mean the summertime heat. On this week's show, we're getting into the spirit of the event with some of the world's most renowned cocktailians. We begin with cocktail industry wonder boy, Dave Wondrich. Dave's reported from the front lines of the craft cocktail movement from its earliest days and is one of the world's top cocktail historians and writers. And when it comes to cocktails, there are few greater influencers than Robert Simonson of the New York Times. Robert reports on the cocktail revolution from the revival of the old-fashioned 30 years ago to what's on the horizon. And finally, we talk with a man who's got whiskey in his blood, Bullet Bourbon founder Tom Bullet. He explains what propelled him to bite the bullet and pursue a full-time career in whiskey. We're wetting our whistle with wizards of the cocktail world on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: One, two, check, check, check. We, we, we say instead of testing, we say tasting. Uh, tasting. Well, I, I can I can drink to that. My name is David Wandrich. I'm a drinks writer and the senior drinks columnist at the Daily Beast.
0: Over the years, we've talked to dozens of cocktail experts on Louisiana Eats, and I've noticed that their faces light up when they start to talk about a certain magical moment in the industry's history. At the turn of the 21st century, bartenders began to rediscover the old ways of mixing drinks, and the craft cocktail revolution was ignited. Dave Wondrich was at the center of that movement, when we finally captured Dave for a conversation, he spoke of those early days and his accidental debut as a cocktail writer.
1: When I started writing about drinks, it was at the very end of 1999. I got a phone call from my friend Josh Mack, who was working for Hearst Media, right? Hearst Magazines. And he said, I have kind of a weird project for you. Uh, and it involved editing an old cocktail book that of Esquire's. For the web, and uh, I started doing it. And the old this old Esquire book had uh, little essays for some of the drinks, just a little paragraph of racy Esquire style prose. It was from 1949, and uh, I liked those. And so I wrote a few more of them for some of the other important drinks. And I got a call and it said, uh, "We like those. Can you do one of those every week for the website because we need content?" And I said, "Sure." And suddenly, you know, I was a cocktail expert. I'd always liked cocktails uh, going back to, I was a musician in my early 20s and uh, I could only afford to drink in old man bars, so I drank a lot of uh, very dry martinis. And uh, so I knew a little bit about it, but I really didn't know that much.
0: I suspect that it must have been in that general time warp that all of the fantastic, great cocktailians came together at that one perfect time. Yeah,
1: it was it was it was really funny. I, I started, you know, when I started writing this online column, I was really I didn't know that there was gonna be a movement out of this. At the time, I was making cocktails at home and and we wanted to make Sazeracs. And I went to every. This was before the internet, so I went to every grocery store, every you know high-end grocery store in New York, looking for Peychaud's bidders. And uh, usually they'd say no, and sometimes they'd say, "Oh, I think it's in the back." And I'd go in the back, and there'd be the bidder's shelf, and there'd just be Angostura and an empty space. So this was they had just finally left the market. And we were stumped because we really wanted to make Sazeracs. And then uh, Emeril came into uh, the restaurant, uh, an American place where Karen, my wife, was working. And uh, Karen told him about this, our project. And two days later, a package shows up at our door with two huge bottles of Peychaud's courtesy of Emerald and I will love that man till my grave.
0: God bless you, Emerald.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Emerald. You 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 are you are a gent and and, and a lovely man. And so we, we were we were making Sazeracs up in New York and nobody was making Sazeracs, you know. You couldn't get the stuff. No. And now it's like oh my God. It's I don't even it's, know where to start. It's almost passe. Yeah. You don't even know where to start. Uh we had no inkling that there would be new bars opening only to make craft cocktails
0: was there a bar when you went really this is really happening
1: well milk and honey in new york which had opened right around the time i started writing but i hadn't heard of them yet uh because it was pretty underground uh there were a couple others you know angel share also in new york uh I went to London and I uh, met Dale DeGroff there because he was consulting.
0: Oh my goodness, that must have been quite oh, a moment. This was,
1: this was the great, one of the greatest weeks of my life, I have to say. It was maybe uh, 2001, early in the year, and I'd been writing for a couple years for Esquire, and Jonathan Downey, who owns a lot of bars in London and is a a real character. He's he's uh, pretty straightforward. Let's say, yeah, honest, frank, <laughs> <laughs> outspoken, outspoken. Yes, <laughs> he's one of those types. Anyway, he was the uh, English columnist uh, for English Esquire, the drink columnist, and he liked my stuff. And he said, "You should come over." And I came over, and uh, he was opening Milk and Honey London, and Dale DeGroff was doing the training, and he basically had Dale and I pal around for a week oh in my. London and i I had not met Dale before, but i'd you know heard of him and respected his work and It turns out we got along very well and we had a blast. We went to uh Groucho's club we went to these uh the colony room, the famous social club that's where uh, all the all the modern British artists paid their tabs and paintings and uh they didn't have a cocktail strainer. the guy used his fingers it, you know it was filthy. We, we, we did all this stuff and we just had a blast. That was one of the, just an unimaginably fun week.
0: Are you amazed at the extreme number of craft distilleries and this boutique
1: sort of extreme moment we're in? I'm amazed. Uh, sometimes, frankly, I'm appalled. <laughs> Why? Because uh, for every 10 master distillers, there are about three distillers. You know, there yeah. there there are about three people who know what they're doing, and a bunch of other people who are kind of floundering around and making something that tastes vaguely like gin. You know, I, I tasted something just just now. I was over at one of my favorite bars on earth, Two Jags, with one of my favorite bartenders on earth, Paul Gustings. You know, he's an old friend of mine. Just to interrupt for a second, I knew I amounted to something in life when my bartender came and picked me up at the airport. Oh yeah. When I landed in New Orleans, you know, Paul came and got me once, and I was like, "Okay, I have done something with my life." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, Paul had me taste this this liqueur that somebody had sent him, uh, and it was just appallingly bad. You know, it happens. I mean, that's part of it too. But there are some people who are great.
0: Dave, you walked in this afternoon and immediately said to me, "Ah, look, there's a punch bowl." Let's make some punch. (laughs) Where does your absolute punch mania spring from?
1: Uh, It springs from being a very lazy person. I will tell (laughs) you that. Because uh, when I started writing about drinks, suddenly I'm the drinks guy among my friends. And we'd have parties and I'd be sitting there shaking cocktails for everyone. And uh, if you stand behind a, a, a counter with a cocktail shaker, even your best friends turn into monsters. Yeah. It's horrible.
0: We're suddenly, thirsty.
1: Yeah. And it's like, can you do that? You know, it's like, I don't like what you're making. Can you make me this while well, I don't have the stuff? What do you mean you don't have the stuff? It's like that's you know, and suddenly you're taken aback. It it's like, wait, you're my friend. You're over here at my house. You know, I don't have to make you anything, really. Really? I mean, I could, could
0: um, I can give you a bottle of coke yeah. and there's some, some rum over there. Yeah, and you can help yourself. Good <laughs> luck you with know. that.
1: So so I learned early on, it's like this is this is not great let me look at these weird corny old punch recipes. And I'd look at the amounts of water that went into them. And I'd say, that's way too much water. And I'd leave most of the water out. And you know what happened. There's people wandering on the lawn with no pants on. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's just, it's slaughter of the innocents. slaughter of the innocents. Oh my God. We had some days. Oof. And finally I learned, just put the damn water in, (laughs) you know. Absolutely. I I like getting people a little more drunk than they were counting on. Not a lot more. I don't like them, you know, throwing up and falling over. But I like people suddenly to be just a little more tipsy than they thought because that's when that's when the real fun starts. It's in that area right there. That you know? golden
0: moment. Yeah, that golden moment when, when,
1: when everybody's just suddenly like, woo, this is fun.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: And, you know, I, I, it's a little bit of chaos that I enjoy.
0: And I, as I understand it, you've taken to talking about – Drinking like a pirate. So, how do you drink like a pirate, Dave? What's well, up with you and the pirates? Well, uh,
1: the pirates, what everybody thinks they were just swigging rum out of the bottle. There's, there's one uh, record of a pirate ship capturing an uh, Anglican priest on board, and they pressed the priest into service to be their punch maker. Uh, they drank punch. Thank you very much. You know, they they pirates tried to do the best of everything when they could get it. You know, and and raw rum, okay, but we can drink punch. You know, we can we can take sugar from people and limes from people just as easily as we could take casks of rum, and wouldn't we rather have punch? You know. <laughs> I'm very curious if Dave Wondrich drinks seasonally. I make a lot of manhattans and things like that in the winter. I I I write, I work at home mostly. And I'll always come down at the end of the day from my office and make a, make, mix a cocktail for uh, Karen and me. And, and it's, I don't usually work from recipes. I just look at what we have. And, and it's usually something kind of uh, in the martini and Manhattan family, you know, something, some vermouth and uh, some, some, some spirits because it's before dinner and it's a little bit of an aperitif. And uh, in the summer, though, I, I sort of switch to daiquiris and things like that.
0: There's always someone who's ready to ask you questions like, what would your last meal be? Who would your dining companions be? Dave Wondrich, I would be remiss if I let you out of here without asking you. If you could have only one last cocktail on this earth, what would you pick?
1: Well, uh, (laughs) It's funny. I mean, uh, when when I left my job at Esquire after seventeen years, uh, they asked me to do an exit column. They asked that question, and uh, I said it would be a sidecar with uh, Gaz Regan uh, at uh, Harry's Bar in Paris. And you know, I'm not going to change that answer <laughs> uh, because uh, the first time I was at Harry's, I was with, with with Gaz, or formerly the artist formerly known as Gary, and he's an old and dear friend of mine. And when we we were sitting there. And it's an old bar that was transported from the U.S. So it's, it's an old American-style cocktail bar. And the sun was slanting in through the little window behind us. And the bar had been polished by hands for over 100 years. And, uh, and the bartender was using a beautiful silver shaker and just shook us up a couple rounds of sidecars. And uh, I don't know. That was the best drink in the world at the time. And, uh, you know, I would go with that again.
0: This is such a thrill. I've been waiting a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we could do this.
1: Me too. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much.
0: Writer and cocktail virtuoso, Dave Wondridge. my favorite non-alcoholic libation? Well, it's something I call Poppy's Pink Drink. If you're a server in the New Orleans hospitality industry, you may have heard me order one. It's a little complicated. Poppy's Pink Drink is comprised of cold sparkling water in a stemmed glass, no ice, no fruit, and about a tablespoon of New Orleans' own Peychaud's Bitters. Okay, okay, Peychaud's is made with an alcohol base, as are most bitters. But trust me, if you could drink a whole bottle of Peychaud's, I'm still not sure you'd get a buzz. That's not what Poppy's Pink Drink is about anyway. It's about taste and enjoyment. Even at the nicest cocktail affair, if I'm not imbibing, I still feel like part of the party with my lovely wine glass and its happy pink contents. You can find the recipe in my most recent book, Drag Queen Brunch, and on our website. And one more thing I hate that word, mocktail. Please. Let's all stop using it. I don't want you mocking on me just because I'm not drinking the high-proof stuff. I'm Poppy Tooker, and cocktail bitters can make for some good Louisiana drinks. When we come back from a short break, we'll hear from journalist and author Robert Simonson, someone the New York Times has called our man in the liquor-soaked trenches. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial crystal hot sauce how new orleans does flavor from rouse's markets synonymous with seafood straight from louisiana's waterways rouse's markets tastes like home and from camellia brand beans done right a new orleans tradition since 1923 Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Every year at Tales, there's a small faction of people who are neither bartenders nor spirits makers, but they're still major influencers in the industry. Robert Simonson, the cocktail writer for the New York Times, holds a position he virtually invented while witnessing the rebirth of cocktails in the 1990s. Robert brought us back to that moment, a time when classic cocktails like the old-fashioned became in fashion, in the newly forming world of cocktails. Robert even wrote a book, complete with 50 different recipes devoted exclusively to the old-fashioned. To begin, Robert described the time this new golden age of cocktails was emerging.
2: Well, it sort of uh, happened. It was just like a, a few little rivulets in the 80s and 90s that all met around the year 1999 or 2000, then became this mighty river, and now it's an ocean, an ocean of cocktails. One of the interesting things about the movement is that it cropped up almost simultaneously and independently in in different places like New York and London and Australia, and uh, people were sort of like working in their silos and doing their same things, not realizing that other people were doing them elsewhere. There weren't many books in print about cocktails, good ones anyway. So you had to go to the library or the used bookstores to find things by uh, people like Jerry Thomas and William Schmidt. And um, and you'd study these and you'd look at these recipes and then try to recreate them. And it, it was hard work. I mean, a lot of these early bartenders were researchers. Um, they had to build their profession back up from scratch because it had been so degraded for so long as a, uh, you know, a dead-end job where you just kind of slung beers and highballs and things like that. In New York, the the main man was a man named Dale DeGroff. Our hero. Yes. Yes, we all know (laughs) Dale DeGroff.
0: Anybody else of that caliber that uh, comes to your mind from the very beginning?
2: Um, The next one to come along who became, I think, even more influential was uh, Sasha Petrasky, he was the visionary that created Milk and Honey, which um, created the um, modern speakeasy template um, that was copied so many times in so many cities across the world. And he was just a New Yorker, a guy, an iconoclast who didn't like the bars that he saw in his neighborhood of Greenwich Village. And he wanted a place where people could go and have a quiet, dignified, civilized drink, a good drink. And, um, and that's what he created And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book now. I felt the history, even though the movement is young, it's really only, what, 15, 20, 25 years old, but people have begun to forget.
0: I'd like to ask you why, out of all the cocktails in the world, you decided that the old-fashioned was the one that was worthy enough to devote an entire book to.
2: Well, the old-fashioned was... um One of the cocktails that was, I believe, resurrected and saved by the cocktail uh, renaissance. Um, I remembered the Old Fashioned because my mother drank them. (laughs) I'm from Wisconsin, and a lot of people drink Old Fashions there.
0: But they drink Old Fashions there in a very funny way.
2: They do, and they still do. They, They drink them with brandy and with the muddled fruit and strange garnishes and soda water and Sprite and all kinds of stuff. Um, the Old Fashioned was a drink that really stumped mixologists for the longest time. They, they knew it was a classic cocktail. They knew they should respect it, but every time they ordered one in a bar, they got this awful soupy, fruity mix that they, they didn't like. And then people like David Wundrich started cracking the old books and realizing, oh, the drink wasn't always made this way. Once upon a time, it was a very simple drink. Sugar, bitters, uh, bourbon or rye, and uh, just on the rocks. Uh, and once they started making it that way, they realized, oh yes, okay, here's a respectable drink, here's a drink I want to serve in my bars. And also, once they started serving it that way, the young people who had forsworn the old fashion as an old fogey drink and nothing that they would ever pick up, started liking it too, because this all coincided and dovetailed nicely with the bourbon and rye renaissance. And one could argue that, um, I mean, it is the Ur cocktail. It is the original cocktail. Uh, And so I thought, okay, that deserves a book. Uh, I didn't think anyone would agree with me, and indeed a lot of people didn't for the longest time. I had the idea for three years before somebody said, okay, we'll let you write that book.
0: Would you give me the evolution of how that drink changed from the earliest recipes that you could find, and the version from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Take, take us down that path.
2: So in the early 1800s, the first half of the 19th century, it was mainly, it was just called the whiskey cocktail. I mean, the full name of the drink is the old-fashioned whiskey cocktail, and that's why we call it an old-fashioned, which is really just an adjective. We're just like saying an adjective. May I have an adjective, please? Um, <laughs> it's like Jeopardy. No, wait. Who asked for adjectives? I don't know. I forget which game show. A man
0: walks into a bar and says, fix me an adjective. Yes.
2: Here's an old-fashioned. You can put your noun after that. Um, So a whiskey cocktail was whiskey, uh, bitters, sugar, water. Um, And it was originally served up, meaning it wasn't on the rocks. Um, and probably um, room temperature sometimes, and it was like a morning drink. It was what they called an eye-opener, which was a very wide category back then, that like men would wake up and they'd go to the bar before they went to work, and so you'd get a whiskey cocktail. Very simple drink. So then when you get to the 1870s, uh, bartenders get more toys to play with, Uh, liqueurs come from Europe, things like chartreuse and maraschino liqueur. Vermouth arrives, that creates a very big splash in the cocktail world. So they started creating what they thought were improved whiskey cocktails. Whiskey cocktails with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And this, of course, gets the old schools back up. And so they start asking for an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail. Give it to me the old-fashioned way. And so then you get this kind of like retro movement where they're getting the simple whiskey cocktail back, only it's not the same anymore. It's not made with sugar anymore. It's made with simple syrup. It's not served up. It's served on the rocks because it's its uh, the end of the 19th century. It's the Gilded Age. We have fabulous saloons, and people are more leisurely in their drinking, so they can just sip that old-fashioned rather than knocking it back. Um, so you had, like, two competing old-fashions for a while. You had the classic old-fashioned, and then you had these souped-up ones. Early 20th century, you started to see introduction of fruit, but the fruit is usually on top as a garnish. And then, of course, we get prohibition and everything goes black, everything goes dark, and everyone forgets everything. When we get on the other end of that tunnel, um, the old-fashioned is a drink that everyone remembers, but now it's being made differently. Now the muddled fruit is coming in. They muddle the fruit and they pour in the whiskey. It's still on the rocks. There may be a little soda water on top. It's kind of I don't know, an adulterated version of the original cocktail. Nobody really knows why that happened. Uh, They may have started adding fruit in the Prohibition to mask the taste of bad liquor. Mm. They may have started adding fruit because, uh, strangely enough, after Prohibition, Old Fashioned was thought of as a woman's drink. They liked it because it was sweet. Um, And this is when women could start to drink in public because of Prohibition. They could now go to bars and nobody would think badly of them. So um, that, that version dominated, uh, the, the muddled fruit version, really until the dawn of the 21st century when the young, brave new mixologists discovered the old versions and brought that back. But of course, the muddled version is the version that you see most often in regular bars still.
0: I would like to hear from you, Robert, about where you believe New Orleans is placed in the geography of cocktails.
2: Uh, New Orleans is a special case uh, because it is a city that never forgot the cocktail and it never stopped embracing the cocktail. Uh, Very few places on the planet have invented as many classic cocktails as New Orleans. But I think uh, by the time the cocktail revolution came around, uh, New Orleans was a bit set in its ways. Um, They had been drinking the same things the same way for a very long time, and those things were very good, but they were not moving forward. Katrina was a huge influencer in the cocktail movement because what happened is it displaced everybody. And a lot of the important people, they went up to Chicago, they went to Seattle, they went to New York, and they saw what was going on there in terms of bars and cocktails. And when they came back, and most of them did come back, they came back with ideas. And so that's when uh, Cure opens and the the Cure people open many subsequent bars, and and now New Orleans has the best of both worlds. You have the old bars that have always been doing it. They were were classic cocktails, and are still doing them the way they always did, so you got the tradition, and you've also got innovation. You've got newer bars that are doing the fresh ideas. So I feel that's, uh, that's its role right now.
0: How did you become a drinks writer?
2: Well, when I first came down to Tales of the Cocktail, my first year was 2006. I was writing about wine. Um, and I met Ann uh, Tunneman, then Ann Rogers, um, by accident in New York at a, uh, at a pop-up Illy Coffee Cafe that she was helping to promote. And she just, uh, I wrote a story about the pop-up cafe, and she said, come down to New Orleans. I do this little cocktail thing. <laughs> and I had never been to New Orleans, and I thought, hmm, good excuse to go to New Orleans, finally. And I came down here and realized this, there was this world of spirits producers, uh, cocktail bartenders, cocktail bar owners, and that they were all very passionate, and they were all very excited about the prospects of their industry, and they were also very colorful. And, uh, wine people are many things, but they're not particularly colorful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought, this, this is interesting. Perhaps I could write about this. And I decided to shift my focus, um, because I saw at that moment that a new profession had been, uh, invented and that was the cocktail writer, which hadn't existed. There were just a few examples, uh, people like David Wondrich, who were writing steadily about cocktails and spirits, but, um... I saw that the newspapers and magazines were interested in this new movement, and they needed people to write about it uh, who knew what they were talking about. So I was, you know, right place at the right time.
0: Is there something incredibly memorable that you've learned here?
2: The first tales I went to, one of the first seminars I went to was with a guy named Ted Bro, And this was when absinthe was still illegal, and you couldn't get any. And he had absinthe. And we sat there and and we drank absinthe and had an absinthe drip. And, and he talked about it And I just thought, how is this possible? It's like, how did he get this stuff? Shouldn't the police be coming? Um, and so that was an eye-opener that was particularly memorable. But I've had many experiences like that since.
0: Robert, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and have this leisurely conversation. I enjoyed I it. It's enjoy my pleasure. It. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: New York Times cocktail writer, Robert Simonson. What is a Pousse Café? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom and pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, Request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's Culinary Quiz Question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a Pousse Café? A Pousse Café is an elaborate drink that's a throwback to the 19th century, something that hasn't quite made its way back into modern cocktail culture. It consists of 10 or 12 layers of liqueur, each a different color, stacked carefully, one on top of the other, creating a magical rainbow effect. Originally, it even had its own stemmed glass, again, something you're not likely to see anytime soon. The layered effect is created when the bartender gently pours each liqueur over the back of a spoon. The flavors vary, but often include grenadine, maraschino liqueur, creme de menthe, creme de violette, yellow chartreuse, and brandy. The important thing a bartender has to know is the viscosity of each because that's how you get the floating trick to occur. If you grew up in the New Orleans of the 60s and 70s, it's a good guess you remember Nick's original Big Train Bar on Tulane Avenue. Nick's had actually been in existence since 1918, first as a neighborhood grocery that began selling liquor after Prohibition. Proprietor Nick Castro Giovanni was famous for his Poos Café and claimed to hold the world's record for most layers, having once poured 32 different liqueurs into the pony glasses he preferred. Nick's rebuilt after Hurricane Betsy in 1965, but didn't make it back after Katrina. Good news, though. Nick's Big Train Bar purportedly is coming back to Tulane Avenue. So get ready to belly up to the bar and order a Pooh's Cafe. I'm Poppy Tooker, and a Pousse Cafe makes for good Louisiana drinks.
3: Big Train, make that whistle sigh. Big Train, make that whistle cry. Big Train, don't you tell me a lie. Big train, watch you ever say goodbye? I am Tom Bullitt. I am the
0: founder of Bullitt Bourbon. If you've ever considered a career change, you've no doubt heard the same advice. Don't quit your day job till you've got something else lined up. 30 years ago, Tom Bullitt was a lawyer with dreams of becoming an entrepreneur
3: Well, as I tell young entrepreneurs, if you have a successful business, you're an entrepreneur. If you're not, I probably can't say what you are. Uh, It would be inappropriate. So people will say, well, how do I be an entrepreneur? And I say, well, marry someone with a good job.
0: That someone happened to be Betsy, his wife, since 1987. Not long after their nuptials, Tom was able to make the move from practicing law to distilling law. Bullet Bourbon, and thanks to its quick rise in popularity, he hasn't looked back since. Today, you can find Bullet's iconic canteen-shaped bottles in bars all over the world. When we spoke with Tom, he explained what propelled him to bite the bullet and pursue a full-time career in whiskey. I think it all began when I was
3: working between school terms. I would work either for family or for friends or in in Louisville or Bardstown at the distilleries and really fell in love with the business at that point. Always wanted to do it. And after I finished the University of Kentucky after some years, my father who went to Notre Dame uh, said to me, Tom, your undergraduate work has been abysmal. And it was so abysmal I didn't know what the word meant. I said, thanks, Dad. Uh, I, s- I said, I'm, I'm going to be a master distiller. He said, you'll be going in the military like everyone else, and then you will be a lawyer. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. So after some training, corps school, field medical school, I'm off to Vietnam with the 1st Marine Division in 1967, 68.
0: Wow. And how did that shape your future?
3: Well, I think it shaped my future dramatically. In one way, I was an undisciplined undergraduate, and I did go to law school afterwards and was a a good law student.
0: And what made you decide in 1987 to take this big shift in life?
3: Well, I really wanted to do this all of my life. Our family's been in and out of the business for six generations, and it just sort of ripened at that time.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you learned about your great-great-grandfather, how that inspired you, and who Augustus Bullitt really was.
3: We know some about him. A lot of the history is oral history. We know that he immigrated from France, came to New Orleans here in the early 1800s, lived here for a while, and then traveled up the Mississippi and the Ohio Rivers to the Louisville area of Kentucky, distilled between maybe 1830 and 1860. And then ultimately, maybe a couple times a year, he would bring barrels down those rivers. Of course, he spoke French and had commercial contacts here. And would sell age it by the mile. I guess when he got it here, they would sell it. And then travel back to Kentucky, which would have been a very arduous journey during yes. that period of our history. and And in 1860, he did not return. He yes.
0: came to New Orleans, but he didn't make it back.
3: We don't know how far he made it. He could have made it to Memphis, he could have made it to Natchez, could have turned the wrong way and gone to St. Louis. We, we, you know, you just don't know. But we know he didn't return. And he had five children. I am descended of one of those children, John Joseph, descendant of one of those children, and passed down from Augustus to John Joseph to F. A. My grandfather Francis Aim. Aime Bullet, needless to say, that did not survive to the next generation. Thomas, my father, and then Thomas, me, and the kids of six generations.
0: If one was to drink Bullet Bourbon today, what might they taste of your great-great-grandfather in it?
3: Well, I think what they would taste is that it is bourbon. I think the bourbons would have been similar. Particularly, we, we make a cast-strength bourbon, which is barrel-strength and his bourbon would have been like that. It would, it would not have been anywhere near as sophisticated, obviously. He would not have been able to control. that. would have been a similar process, but he would not have been able to control the process like we can today and control the consistency. But I think it would have. he would have used similar grains. He would not have aged it very long. Uh, the color would have come from the barrel, the same thing. They would have been charred because they may have shipped fish to Kentucky, and they would burn that out. No, those really, the containers, the shipping containers of that era were barrels. I would presume that ours would be tastier, shall I say.
0: Tom, what is your favorite way to drink your whiskey? My dad and I would probably
3: drink, sit on the patio. He would lay lay a stone patio in the back of the house. That's when back in the era when dads knew how to do things, I don't. We we would sit there and maybe um, have bourbon on the rocks. Water is to whiskey as oxygen is to wine, ice the same thing it's going to open it up. Mother would drink a highball, which is add water to the bourbon and and on the rocks. My aunt was a Catholic nun; she drank it straight I guess she gave her <laughs> gave herself a dispensation, I guess I don't know and then the cocktail culture, which has been an, a a huge growth driver for our brand is which is really a cult brand on premises. I've probably tried thousands of cocktails over the years, and, and I've never had one that I didn't think was tasted good and was well-made. My wife drinks BLTs. Betsy drinks bullet bourbon, a little lemon like a wedge of lemon we throw in our iced teas, and tonic, which you wouldn't think to put together, and is a delicious drink. It's very nice.
0: If you were to sit down today with your great great grandfather, what do you suppose the two of you would have to talk about
3: well, I think we I would ask him i would say well, why didn't you come home <laughs> I
0: think that would be the so, first question so, <laughs> where
3: Where have you been? It's okay to come back now. I would be speaking as one of his descendants. I'm not sure if his if his wife would ask the same question. She may say, "Well, we've missed you some <laughs> so So I think we would have a nice conversation about making whiskey and and what what a great tradition that had been. If you reflect... In 1800, there were 2,000 stills in Kentucky. It was a function of our agrarian society. If you grew grains, you would feed the family, feed the livestock, and the grains would either rot or you'd make whiskey. So it was really a function of daily life at that point. I think he would obviously be amazed to see how the industry has evolved with something that really started as a basic element of farming.
0: Since 1987 until today, what are the things that have surprised you about the industry, about what you've seen, have you had any moments where you've said, oh, "Really now?"
3: Well, I th- I think w- well lots of those moments. I think, for instance, when I brought Augustus's recipe back in 1987, that was in the middle of the the vodka craze. I mean, w- b- bourbons were dramatically in the decline. At that point, scotches had usually been sold as blends, but then all of a sudden in the late 80s, early 90s, into the mid-90s, they started marketing single malts, and straight bourbons are essentially single malts. So everybody really sort of upped their game at that point in the American brown goods distilling industry. I think we all have been, from Jimmy Russell to Elmer T. Lee and all of the great giants, some of whom have passed, now like Lincoln Henderson, and and Bill Samuels, my dear friend Bill Samuels, I think we were all surprised at how bourbons have come back. I think certainly in my life, surprises have been really the function that I'm not dead yet, and I've fallen uphill a lot. When we got together with Seagrams, when we partnered with Seagrams, and then when our current partner, Diageo is a wonderful company, bought a lot of Seagrams, and, and we're with them now. So I think, I think that, I, I think... Um, some some of the moments i don't have to tell betsy my wife is a, a financial advisor stockbroker she tells me to say financial advisor but i remember her asking me about every 3 months she would say tom tell me tell me again how this is all going to work i've calculated that it will take you practicing law until you're 117 and a half just pay the interest on the loans here so so i don't have to I don't have to answer that anymore, which is nice.
0: That's that's grand. So many people in this industry got caught by surprise with the craze for rye whiskey. Tell me about why rye whiskey is so identifiable with Bullet.
3: Well, for a couple of reasons. We have grown with the cocktail movement. I call these uh, bartenders and the mixologists our partners in chemistry. One of the the philosophy of our brands is to defer to them. I want to respond to them. We make straight aged bourbons and rye, and our rye, our bourbon whiskey. My great great grandfather's recipe that I brought back was two thirds corn, one third rye, and and that's about maybe twice plus as much rye as any of the other bourbons. So our San Francisco bartenders love that product, and they said, Tom, we see rye coming on, because a lot of the old cocktails call for rye whiskey. You've got a big footprint in your bourbon with the rye recipe. Why don't why don't you bring us a full rye? And uh, that's exactly what we did. We started early on, and then in 2011, brought out our, our rye whiskey, uh, which is 95% rye, for Five percent malted barley. It's a great. Well, now it has become the, really the definitive product in in the category. I think we have maybe a half, maybe a fifty percent market share. Turn of the century, two thousand three, four, five. We we started that project very seriously. It was almost like a hot tip from the bartenders, and and made made a good amount of rise. So we were, and I think that certainly attributes to some of our growth. We were able to stay in stock and and uh, and, and it 's a great product at a good price,
0: If you were to take the long look with the way that spirits change and tastes change, what do you think the future of bourbon is?
3: I think it, I think the future is bright it 's one of the baseline categories. When you mix a drink with bourbon, you configure it so it pushes forward what is there and enhances what is there. You live in the world of dining of everything from pretty good to fine dining and and it would be like saying well do you think do you you think wine is a phase well it's wine is here to stay obviously and I think the cocktail culture and and it's is here to stay and the bourbon industry will uh, be a component of that always
0: well Tom Bullitt this was such an honor to speak with you and to have this experience with you thank you so much for talking with us
3: well thank you for thank you for inviting me it's a it's a great honor and we love new orleans i do feel a, a very family connection with augustus here that that's uh, it's we sort of feel like well we're from here a little bit
0: Tom Bullet, founder of Bullet Bourbon. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce... Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission and from Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longline and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladoo. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.